Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. So if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2. We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. And we're looking at verse 5 this morning. And so the writer says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him whom for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Yeshua, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is just a a marvelous book. This is an incredible section. I wanted to cover more, but the more I kept looking at just these few verses, the more involved they became, the more significant they are. And I thought we ought to just reflect on these few words that he wrote here. Putting it in context, remember the writer is telling us that God speaks. That's his major point throughout this entire book. God is speaking. In chapter 1, verse 1, he said, God has spoken to us at various times and in various ways in the past by prophets. Now, he doesn't actually say by prophets. He says in prophets. And so his idea is that the prophetic voice was God's voice to us. And yet, as important as that voice is, As significant as that voice is, as accurate as that voice it is, it pales in comparison to the voice that God is now presently speaking to us because he is speaking to us in son. That's what it says literally. He's not merely speaking to us by his son or through his son, but he's speaking to us in son. His meaning is he's speaking to us in a sun-wise kind of way. He's speaking to us through this, the very life and events and actions that Messiah has provided for us. Everything about Messiah is God's message to us. This is very similar. It's hard to define, but this is very similar to what John writes in the book of Revelation. 
Because in the book of Revelation, he tells us that when the Lord appeared to him, and that's why the book is referred to as the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Messiah. It's the appearance of Messiah. The book of Revelation does tell us about end time events, but that's not what's being revealed to us. Those are just the stepping stones to the revelation that he's writing about. What he's writing about is Messiah. And that's why the title of the book is actually the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah. It's revelation of him. And all of these events lead us to his most significant and glorious manifestation. And so when John sees these events and sees Messiah in all of his glory, he says that it was on the Lord's day that this appeared to him. Many have thought, well, the Lord's day, that's Sunday, because that's the day that Yeshua rose from the dead, the first day of the week. But the word there doesn't mean the Lord's day, meaning Sunday. It's an adjective. And literally, it says he had... Uh, been gathered or he was on the island of Patmos and this vision came to him and it was a, the best way we can translate it, is a Lordian day. It was a Lord kind of day. In other words, he can't come up with a word that's significant enough. I mean, he might have said it was a glorious day. It was a marvelous day. It was a majestic day. But for John, all of those words are too small. Because Yeshua appeared in such glory, the only way he can describe the day is to say it was a God day. It was a day of God. And so when he says it was the Lord's day, he's saying it was a Lord kind of day. And similarly, the writer here is saying that when God speaks, it is in Messiah. It is in Son, the Son of God. It is a Son kind of speech. It's a Messianic kind of speech. It's a Messiah kind of speech. And so therefore, he says, the word of the Lord revealed to us through the entirety of Messiah's life, teachings, and actions is significantly greater than any other kind of revelation that has come before us as of yet. And to demonstrate this, he then tells us seven things about Messiah that makes him superior to that of the prophets. And so he said things like, if you want to look with me, he says, first of all, that he's the appointed the heir of all things. So these things were not just bequested to him. He's the natural family member and heir. So that very statement tells us he is equal to God. He's in God's family, not family like you and I are, but he is directly connected to God. And it's like an inheritance. You know, if you're not a family member, then when someone passes away and leaves you something, he has bequested something to you. You're a, you have been bequeathed an inheritance. But if you are a family member, you are an heir. And so the writer is saying, Yeshua is the inheritor the natural right of everything belongs to him. Why? Because he is God manifested in the flesh. That's just the first thing he says. And it just keeps growing from there. So what does he say? Not only is he the heir, he's the one through whom he created the world. And the word world there is ionos, which means ages. Not just the universe and the things in it, but all of time and space and all that transpires. He tells us that he is the very outshining of the glory of God. 
He's the radiance of God's glory. He tells us he's the exact representation of God's character. He is exactly what God himself is. He tells us that he not only is all of that, but he maintains the universe. He upholds it. He keeps it all together. He's the one that has it uh, staying together and not falling apart. He holds it all together, and he does this in a very simple way, by the word of his power. He just says, this, and it is that. If he says, let there be, it becomes. If it's light, it appears. If it's land, it is manifested. If it's animals, they come. Whatever it is, when he says it, one does it. And it's interesting to see this in the life of Messiah. When he says to Judas, what you must do, do quickly, Judas does it right then and there. Why? Because Messiah told him to. You know, whenever you and I have had to make decisions, is it not true? We sort of get into making the decision, depending on how significant it is, and maybe doing what we decide. And then in the midst of it, we say, wait, I'm going to give this some time and think about it. You would think that when Judas is getting ready to betray the master, he might have thought two, three, four, five times. But once Yeshua says, what you must do, do now, it will be done now. And Judas has no other options. Why? Because, well, he upholds everything by the word of his power. If there's a storm on the sea, he'll say, peace, be still, and it is peaceful, and it is still. Think about that with the water on the Sea of Galilee. Not only do the winds stop blowing, peace was directed to the winds, but to the water, he says, be still, and it becomes as still as glass. Those of you who sail, you can appreciate that, because, and certainly I can, because when I've been caught in very many storms, there have been times I just wanted to stand up and say, peace, be still. But no, you had to ride out the storm. But if Yeshua was there, And he said it by the word of his power, it'll stop. When he says to someone, rise up and walk, they rise up and walk. When he says, Lazarus, come forth, they come forth. When they say, your eyes now can see, they see. Why? Because what he does, he does by the word of his power. And the writer to the Hebrews draws our attention to that. He not only says this, but if you look further, it tells us that he made purification for sins. Not just atonement for sins, not just forgiveness of sins, but he actually can purify us. Think about this. Purify us from our sin. Our sin, whatever choices we've made, whatever we've been victimized by, they do not ever have to be sort of like this thing on our back that we carry around for the rest of our lives. He can cleanse us from it. He can purify us from it. He can just make it go away as if the east is from the west. He can forgive it, but he can also cleanse it. And that's why in John, he says, if we are faithful and just to confess our sin, he will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These are wonderful words, aren't they? And we've not gotten very far. But then he goes on to say, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Seven things about Yeshua tell us he's superior to the voice of the prophets. But then he moves on to tell us why he's even superior to angels. And in these verses, verses, uh, now we're looking at chapter 1, looking at like verses 5 through 14, he gives us seven passages 
from the Hebrew scriptures that demonstrate he is superior to that of the angels. And the one major point that all of these passages make is that he is superior because he is God. He is superior because he is deity. Let all the angels in heaven worship him is one of the phrases he will make, uh, he will allude or draw our attention to. Let all of the angels worship him. Only God is to be worshiped. So why is it that Messiah is told, or at least Messiah is shown to be one who could be worshiped by another, be they angels or man? In the scriptures, whenever angels are worshiped, they always say, stand up, I'm a servant of God just like you are. And the reason they are so quick to tell us not to worship is because they were there when the evil one fell and desired to be worshipped as one who in his pride would determine or desire to rise to the heights so as to be worshipped and acknowledged. The angels saw what had transpired. They know what how it had transformed him. And whenever anyone seeks to worship an angel, they are quick to say, no, rise up. I am a servant just like you are. But Yeshua is totally different. When they go to worship him, he has no qualms about their worshiping of him. Why? Because he isn't a mere man. He is God who has come in the flesh. He's the second person of the triune. And these are complicated matters. But what we have to realize is what do the scriptures reveal? And we need to accept what they teach, even if we cannot fully unfold them or explain them or dissect them. But the main point he wants to make is he's superior to the angels because he is deity, because he is divine, because he is God come in the flesh. The passage we're going to look at picks up this theme of how Messiah is superior to angels. But the difference is he's superior to angels, not with respect to his deity, but with respect to his humanity. Even with regard to his humanity, he is superior to the angels. And this is what I love about this writer. He is so logical, so consistent, and so free-flowing in his thought. And he leads us down this path and explains to us exactly what he's thinking. What's interesting is that before he gets to this passage, and Andrew spoke on this last week, he gives us a parenthetical interruption. And after telling us how superior he is to the prophets as well as the angels, he now gives us his first warning. And he tells us, in light of this, don't drift away from the faith. And I'm sure Andrew spoke very eloquently on this and explained, so I don't want to take a lot of time. But this idea of drifting, I have to make reference to this, but one of this term is used in a variety of ways. One, have used it to speak of a ring that could just inadvertently slip off your finger, you know. I couldn't help but think of Gollum and how, you know, it just slipped off. Where's my precious? I don't want to get too into it. Some people don't like this stuff, you know. I've heard all kinds of things, but um, the ring just slips off his finger, right? But the word is also used of a ship, a boat, and this is where I kind of connected, a boat that slips off its moorings. Do you know how dangerous that is? Whenever I go sailing with my sailing buddy and we um, anchor out somewhere, we always check our anchor road two, three, four times before it sets. You know, we get out, we figure out where we want to go, 
He throws the anchor. I've gotten too old to do that kind of stuff. So now he's the anchor thrower. He gets it out there, and then I'm back with the engine, and we'll back up to make sure it catches, right? And depending on the conditions, we may set up another anchor on, off the stern to make sure that we are secure. And then when we go to sleep, we set up a separate GPS that is a handheld. It's a battery-operated one that has the coordinates of where we are presently with an alarm if by any chance the anchor be for whatever reason slips and we're finding ourselves sort of drifting. Here in California, it's really tough stuff. You know, out in Annapolis, which has great sailing air, it's all mud bottom. So whenever we've made an error, we've just, you know, gone into some mud and it's not a big deal. But out here, it's all rocks and it's not our boat. You know, so you don't want to get drifted into the rocks and then find you sprung a leak. The word here is used for that, to inadvertently drift and then find yourself further afield from where, from where you ought to be and want to be. And that's why I kept thinking of this section and thinking of questions in the Bible. Because there are important questions, you know, what must I do to be saved? That's an important question, Right. Questions like God asks, where are you? You know, in the very first question asked in Genesis chapter 3 or whatever he asked of Adam. But in that parenthetical phrase, there's one of the most important questions found in the Bible as well. How shall we escape God's judgment if we neglect so great a salvation? And isn't it what's interesting to me? It's like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, so great is salvation. He can't come up with a word to speak of how great it is. So he has to use these phrases that just say it's so great, how great it's just so great, you know. But what strikes me is this word neglect, you know. It's like you didn't go out of your way to try to reject the Lord. We just neglected our salvation. We just didn't treat it with the right kind of attention that we ought to treat it. And that's what he warns. In light of the superiority of Messiah, do not fall prey to neglect and neglecting things. He doesn't talk about rejecting and being antagonistic to and battling. He just is concerned, don't neglect what you have just been given because it's dangerous to drift from it. And, you know, we just go little incremental stages, and before long, we're miles away from where we want to be. Incremental stages from our walk with the Lord, and before we know it, we're miles away from where we have been in our walk with him. Remember, the scriptures over, over and over again say, follow me. Don't drift from him, and don't go too far afield, because now we find ourselves going off in the wrong direction. But then in these verses, and let me just take about 10 or 15 minutes just to share with you these verses, because he now picks back up where he left off. He had told us how superior Yeshua is to the angels. And then he gives us a parenthetical warning, don't drift from him. And now he picks it back up to tell us, now let me remind you again, his superiority. Before, he's superior because he is God come in the flesh. But here he's superior because of his humanity 
as well. So take a look in verse five. It says, for it was not to angels. Look at that word for. These are critical little words. For is like therefore. So it's pointing us back to something. And really, if you read it this way, look at verse 14 of chapter one. He says of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who so inherit salvation? Therefore, verse 5, where we are, therefore it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. He's telling us that in verse 14, angels serve in this world, but they do not have the anticipation of reigning in this world. That's what he's saying here. There's coming a time when the Son will have all the world subject to him, whereas in verse 14, the angels are always serving in the world. Now, this word world is really interesting. In chapter 1, we saw in the very beginning, he holds up the world by the word of his power. The word, word world there, in the very like second or third verse, is Ionas, that he controls the ages. He's in charge of history. Things unfold as he determines. When you look at chapter 1, verse 6, it says that, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he's speaking about his second coming. And whenever again he brings Messiah into the world, look what it says, let all God's angels worship him. The word world there is the word, (laughs) I'm trying to pronounce it, oikumene. I think that's how you pronounce it. But it's different than the typical Greek word, this is an easy one to pronounce, cosmos, right? So the Greek word cosmos and ionos, ages and world, cosmos, world, speaks of the universe. So, you know, in apologetics, we speak of the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Cosmological argument is the argument of cause and effect. Something is what has enabled it to be. Everything we know has a cause, There is nothing that is that has not been caused by something, and that something must be greater than the thing it caused. So, you know, I remember years ago when I was in Annapolis, and we went into this nature store. And in this nature store, it had this wooden device with ropes on it with little, like, marble weights. And I go walking in, and one of the weights is going dink, and the other one's going out, and then it goes dink, you know? And it's going, you know what I'm talking about? So the thought comes to me, How did that do that? You know, how is that thing going just like that? Well, somebody came in here, pulled the weight up, right? Dropped it, and then it keeps going until the energy runs out. But something greater than that had to be able to pick up that marble and drop it, right? So now think of the universe, right? How much power is in the universe? Well, whatever set it in motion, right? The planets are spinning around in space. In fact, the whole universe is spinning, Right, Our universe is actually expanding. It's in motion, right? The universe isn't static, it's moving. And so the question is, who picked the marble of the universe up and set it in motion, right? How did it get going? And that's why Aristotle referred to God as the unmoved mover. Everything's in motion but God who can move everything else that is. So the word cosmos, the word universe, speaks to everything that is. The word iona speaks to ages. But this word oikumene speaks of the world that is inhabited by people. So in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, 
And whenever again he brings his firstborn into the inhabited world, Yeshua is going to return to this world. And in chapter 2, verse 5, for it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. There's going to come a time when Messiah will come and he will reign over everything of all the inhabitants on the earth. And look at that phrase, this world to come. That's the most common rabbinic expression for the Messianic age. The olam haba, the world to come. The world that is coming is literally what that means. And that world that is coming is the Messianic age. It's the kingdom of God, which will be subjected. Everything will be subjected to him. This is why it says... In scripture, you know, when we have the history, the Jewish people are taken captive by the Babylonians in 600. From that period on, the Jewish people are dominated by Gentile nations. The times of the Gentiles, Yeshua makes reference to it of, and that is the time when the Jewish people are dominated by the Gentile nations, be them the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. You could look at the Arabs when they took control of the Middle East during the Arab conquest in the Middle Ages. You could look at the Crusades at around 1000. You could look at the Ottoman Empire. You could look at the British Mandate period. And you could even look at our period today. Even though Israel's an independent state, They are vastly dependent upon the United States, not that they are uh, looking to us necessarily, but let's face it, we give them billions of dollars to support their infrastructure, be it military or otherwise, and rightly so. And we need to be in prayer. You see all that's going on in terms of attacks upon Jewish people around the world. But that's the whole point. There's this domination of the Gentiles until... And then ultimately, the anti-Messiah, the false Messiah will come, and there will be a false covenant, and again, the Gentiles will dominate. In fact, Zechariah tells us that when the final confrontation takes place that will bring about the return of Messiah, two-thirds of the Jewish people will perish. Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9 tells us that. Hitler killed one-third of European Jewry. There were nine million Jews, two-thirds of European Jewry, nine million Jews in Europe at the time, six million perished. But what Zechariah is telling us is that two-thirds of the Jewish world community will perish under his false leadership. Messiah will come and deliver the remnant that remains. And then the times of the Gentiles will come to an end. And the time of the Messianic age will arise. And then the time of Messiah will come and the world will be subjected to him. At no time in all of Scripture does it ever say God will subject the nations to angels. In his humanity, he will reign. See the difference? He will come as the son of David as well as the son of God. He will come as the God-man who will reign over the people of Israel and the nations of the world as king of kings and lord of lords. In his humanity, He is superior to the angels, for in his humanity, he will reign over the nation of Israel and over the kingdom that rightly belongs to them. Is this not really kind of cool, what he draws our attention to? Now, look at this. He then goes on to say, it has been testified somewhere. I love that. Don't you? You know, he said, I just can't remember the verses. So come on. What do you mean you can't? Well, here's a writer of scripture. Who, has, who will quote 
this whole section of Jeremiah 31. Anyone can quote Jeremiah 31? He'll quote Jeremiah 31, but he just can't remember this passage, you know? So it says somewhere, now, okay, I may be, stre- I may be stretching that a little bit. It's also possible he's not concerned to name us where it is, because wherever it is, it's God's word to us. So, you know, somewhere it says, he doesn't have to draw our attention to the writer, right? But I like to think of his limitations because so often I try to remember, where is that again? I know it's there somewhere. You know, I know it's there somewhere. But the, other, the in- interesting thing is, whether he knows where it is or not, he knows what it says because he quotes it for us, right? So, okay. So he quotes Psalm 8. And he says, what is man? See, here's the humanity. Now, he's talking about humanity, mankind. He's not talking about Messiah. So catch this. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The psalmist is speaking to God. If it's David, and I think it does say a psalm of David, you can imagine David the shepherd outside with his sheep, maybe laying down on the ground, looking up at the sky. Have you ever done that? What is it about us that makes you want to pay attention to us in this vast universe. He goes on to say, and the son of man, he's speaking about human beings. He's not talking about Messiah yet. The son of man that you care for him. Not only is God aware of us, mindful, but he's concerned for us to do something about what he knows our need is. Is that not remarkable? I mean, he's got this whole vast universe, but this little dot of people dust sort of circulating on this one small planet among the billions of galaxies or stars or whatever is out there. And what is it about us, this David asks, that you would think of me, you know? And not just me, but all of us that are here. And not just think of us, but then to say, to do something for us. And so he says, you made him. Human beings, you made him for a little while, a little while lower than the angels. But even in our lower state, there's something significant because we are created in the image of God, which angels are not. But nevertheless, they are more powerful. They are more brilliant. They are uh, greater in longevity and in power and and understanding about the things of God, but not all the things of God. But nevertheless, for a little while, we're lower. There'll come a time when we will no longer be lower than the angels, but for a little while, we are. And then he goes on to say, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Did you realize, I'm sure you have, that God's intention was for everything to be subjected to us. God's intention when he created the world gave authority to human beings, Adam and Eve, over everything. That was God's intention, that we would care for his creation, that we would reign over his creation, that we would rule over his creation. Everything was intended to be subjected to us. So what happened? Well, we sinned. And when we sinned, we gave over that authority to the one who caused us to sin, the evil one. And that is why he is called or referred to as the prince of the power of the air. So we have subjected, we have sort of vacated our position of authority. And we've granted it 
to another, which has resulted in the, all of the havoc that we see in our world. And this is what is so powerful about this passage. Remember, he's talking about his humanity. He says, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is to mankind, he left nothing outside his control. Everything was meant to be under our subjection and under our control. Look what else he says. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. At present, things are not completely subjected to humanity. But look at that little word, see. He uses it twice. He says here, right now, we do not see. And the word here is arao. It means to look with, with, in, with intent and depth in order to scrutinize something. At present, we're scrutinizing the world, and we do not see it subjected to us. But what do we see? And he tells us in verse 9, but what we do see, and here the word is blepo, which is like a glance. We only have a glance of our Messiah. We've scrutinized the world and our life, and we've realized we don't have everything in control. But we just take a momentary glance at Messiah and look what we see there. There it becomes, even with just a small glance, we see incredible things. And so what do we see? He says, but we see him for a little while made lower than the angels. Now he shifts his thought. Namely, Yeshua. Now, isn't this interesting? He uses the, the earthly, let's call it that, earthly name of our Messiah. Because he's speaking of his humanity. He doesn't say, but now we see Messiah. You know? He says, now we see Yeshua. The one who is made like us. And with just a glance, not even with a lot of, in, you know, with a lot of reflection and uh, and just sort of uh, scrutinizing, not with any deep, penetrating discovering of him, just a glance of him. And what do we see? We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste deaths for everyone. In other words, we don't even fully understand all that he's done. And in that little bit that we do understand, we see he's crowned with glory. So let me close with this. Notice the beneficiaries of what Messiah has done. Look at verse 9. He says he's tasted death for everyone. We are the beneficiaries of what Messiah has done. You and I are the reason he did what he did. And we are the ones who benefit from what he did. So we're the beneficiaries. Take a look at this. Not only does he tell us who are the beneficiaries, but he tells us what he has done. Look what he says. Not only does he do this for everyone, but he tells us what he has done. He has tasted death for everyone. Now, the word taste doesn't mean he nibbled, you know. 
or just, you know, sometimes you go, I say, you want to take a taste? Here's a little. It means that he fully digested death for us. He fully appropriated it. He fully experienced death for us. We are his beneficiaries, but the extent to which he went to benefit us was to the fullest degree. Not only that, but take a look at this. What motivated him to do this? Why did he do it? Well, he tells us he did this by the grace of God. What motivates him is grace. (laughs) None of us can earn this. None of us can deserve this. None of us can command this. None of us can expect this. This is something he has done out of his grace for us. If he did not do it, it would not make him any less just or loving, kind, or merciful, or gracious. Because he has nothing to demand that he do this for us. What he did for us, he did by his grace for us. He's moved by his love for us. And thus, out of his mercy, he experiences the fullness of death in our behalf, that we might be the beneficiaries of all that it provides. And what is the consequence He was crowned with glory and honor. Now, that glory and honor is present, but its fullness will come when he comes again and is crowned fully as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You and I have the great privilege of acknowledging that crowning now. You and I have the privilege of acknowledging that there is no greater name in all of the universe than the name of Yeshua, who has given his life for us. You and I now can voluntarily and out of gratitude bow before him in adoration of what he has done. One day we all will, but now we already can. We don't have to wait for him to come. We can do this now. And we don't have to wait to a time when we will all be forced to, for the king will be there in all of his glory. We can do this voluntarily now. This word that it says that the angels are ministering spirits, I did as I kept restudying this, I kept looking up different words I hadn't looked before. You know that word ministering means religiously devoted as servants of God. And in that passage, it says they are religiously devoted to uh, overseeing those who would inherit salvation. They're religiously devoted to our service, he's saying, because they're religiously devoted to the living God. So here's the question. Are we religiously devoted like those who we are one day to be greater than. Right now, for a little while, we are lower, and they are religiously devoted to to the Savior. 
Can you say that about your life? Can I say that about my life? And when we think of that, now we remember that parenthetical thought. Do not neglect so great a salvation. For if individuals in the time of the law, when they were found guilty before God, experienced the judgment of God, and we can go through all kinds. Think of Achan, who was judged at Jericho for taking something he shouldn't have. Think of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who were judged because they offered wrong fire to the Lord. It doesn't matter what position you hold. It doesn't matter how long you've known the Lord. It doesn't matter anything. But if we neglect so great a salvation, well, how can we expect anything less than what our predecessors, our forefathers have experienced? Remember, he's concerned about 70 AD destruction. And we need to be concerned of what goes on in our own lives and what goes on in our own world. Do not neglect, because the one whom we serve is greater than the angels because he's God come in the flesh, but he's greater than the angels because as man, he will one day come to reign over the earth. And when he does, everything is reversed and human beings will be what they were intended to be from the beginning because he always is what is intended from the beginning. That's the God we serve. That's the Lord who loves us. That's what he has done for us. Do not squander the opportunity to know him because of that. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.